It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. Yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. Well, I, I was supposed to have a guest this weekend, but uh, she took ill, so we're going to dip into the archives. But it is a, a significant anniversary this weekend, and I'll explain why in a little bit. But first, opening in theaters this weekend... No, I did not see the Alec Baldwin talking baby cartoon film. No, I did not see Scarlett Johansson not being Japanese in that action film. Something better. I, and, okay, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to guess that the film I reviewed this weekend is significantly better than those two. And it's uh, one of the Academy Award-nominated foreign films uh, from Denmark, and it's called Land of Mine. And it, it is uh, true. It's based on the story of German POWs right at the end of World War II who are forced to not only discover but to defuse over a thousand landmines on the beaches of western Denmark. So think about the diffusing scenes in the, in, uh, the Hurt Locker, only lo uh, more tense. Um, and a shorter film, by the way, but but that kind of tension. Uh, you not only have the beauty of the Danish coast, but also the story of... Kids who, young kids, basically late teens, early twenties, uh, soldiers who, of course, following orders. Um, you see the camaraderie and the the fear uh, and the hope, the fear of what the consequences could be once uh, while on the job, but also the hope they have when they get back to Germany and get all of this past them. We also have, I wouldn't say it a, it's a love hate relationship, but a hate-respect relationship between the Danish sergeant who is in charge of these uh, of these workers. Uh, they, are, they are locked in every night into a beach house and then uh, forced to go look for landmines during the day. There's, there's a really, right out of the gate, a first scene of German soldiers marching out of the country and this sergeant uh, berating them, uh, he even, even snagging a Danish flag away from one uh, German soldier who attempted to bring it back as a souvenir. So you have, uh, again, uh, this is a sergeant who has to uh, force these guys into work. But as time goes on, we find out, and, and some people don't like these type of films, that in war, both sides are human. 
And so, anyway, it is it is out there. It's up at the Northside Theater, you know, the one with the bar. And a uh, very powerful film, and we need that now because we're post-Oscar, pre-summer blockbuster season. So I'm glad this film finally made it in. That's the beauty of Say What You Will About the Academy Awards. Uh, it does give smaller films and films from other countries a wider audience, and Land of Mine is a great example of that. So go, go check that out this weekend. Okay, a few n- road trips worth taking. Um, over at IU Cinema, and again, this depends on when you're listening to the show, but Saturday... April 1st, today at 3 o'clock, no fooling, if you get a chance at 3 o'clock down at IU Cinema, the 2016 Academy Award-nominated animated feature, The Red Turtle from Studio Ghibli. It's a French-Japanese film of a man stranded on an island and his, uh, his partnership of sorts with the title character, The Red Turtle. Uh, a beautiful film, another film that gets a wider audience by award recognition, at least nomination recognition. So uh, definitely worth checking out. At 7 o'clock is a part of the International Art House series and the China Remix series. Uh, Bing Bing and the Young Pioneers, Working Cut. Uh, Saturday, April 2nd, the Destruction... De- the Destruction of Memory, the 2016 documentary at 3 o'clock. And then at 6.30 p.m., the National Theater live performance of Amadeus. So uh, not the film, but a stage production filmed. And uh, that should be fascinating to check out. Monday the 3rd, the 1974 documentary Primate, uh, Science the Screen series. And then at 7 o'clock as a part of the International Art House series and Movement Asian Pacific America from 2016, the drama Spa Night. Then Tuesday, April 4th, uh, Titicut Follies from 1967. And then Wednesday, April 5th, Boxing Gym from 2010, the documentary at 3 o'clock. 7 o'clock, the Frederick Wiseman and Robert Green lecture. And then at 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday, April 5th, the documentary drama from 2016, Kate Plays Christine. Uh... Thursday, April 6th, a standby only as far as seating from the other films and guest series, The Baker's Wife, the 1938 comedy, Thursday, April 6th at 7 o'clock. Friday, April 7th, Monsieur Lazar from 2011 at 6 p.m. And then Saturday, April 8th, My Internship in Canada, a comedy from 2015 at 3.30 p.m. Do Not Resist at 6.30 p.m. as part of the Inlight Film Festival. Also a part of the Inlight Film Festival on Saturday, April 8th at 9.30 p.m. Oriented, the documentary from 2015. All of those happening at IU Cinema. Next week, mark your calendars at the Historic Art Craft Theater is the Tim Burton Festival. Uh, On Friday night, you'll have The Nightmare Before Christmas as well as The First Batman, the one with Nicholson and Keaton. And then on Saturday, Corpse Bride, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and the underrated, underappreciated Mars Attacks. All of the films worth checking out. Um, it, it's uh, My favorite of his films, of course, is Ed Wood. Um, however, you can rent that. But this is the, all the films are, I highly recommend, and it's not it's not uh, it's not Alice in Wonderland, it's not Dark Shadows. So anyway, that's so that's worth a weekend trip down to the historic Art Craft Theater in Franklin, Indiana. Also this week, the IMA announced their Summer Night Film Series. Uh, If you get a chance on Fridays and Saturday nights from June through August, you can see movies outside, which is always fun, and you don't have to be in your car. Bring a blanket, bring a picnic basket. uh, Food and drinks are also provided, hard and soft drinks. So um, anyway, you can do that over at the IMA. So here are the titles. June 2nd, 
Footloose, the original. June 9th, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. June 10th, the 1967 animated Jungle Book. June 16th, Dial M for Murder. June 17th, Batman Returns. June 23rd, the first film, uh, the first Fast and Furious. On June 30th, the Audrey Hepburn Fred Astaire musical Funny Face. On July 1st, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. On July 7th, Buffy the Vampire Slater, the film before the series. On July 28th, Friday. On July 29th, Stand By Me. On August 4th, 9 to 5. On August 11th, Arsenic and Old Lace. August 18th, Serenity. August 19th, Cool Hand Luke. And August 25th, Blazing Saddles. That is your IMA Summer Night Film Series. Um, some interesting titles in there. Uh, a couple of more recent films that I personally wouldn't pick, but the IMA did, and that will bring people in, so be it. But uh, if you get a chance, Priscilla, Dial M for Murder, Batman Returns, um, Arsenic and Old Lace, Cool Hand Luke, and Blazing Saddles, and Funny Face. So anyway, you can go to the IMA website for more information on those, the IMA Summer Film Series. Uh, new on video this week, uh, the, for me, the big title and the best title of the lot, and it's a film that uh, it was kind of criminally under-recognized uh, under by the Academy, uh, but it was Silence, the new film from Martin Scorsese with uh, Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, and Liam Neeson. Uh, Garfield and Driver play uh, missionaries who go through, uh, travel through 17th century Japan to find one of their uh, brethren, played by Liam Neeson, who apparently uh, has disappeared and possibly have lost his faith. And uh, this is a very challenging film from Scorsese. Uh, This was a period where um, if Christians were found in Japan, they were tortured and they were killed for their beliefs. Um, And there are scenes even in something as simple as when a prisoner is asked to step step, step on a picture of Christ with their foot. And they refuse to do it, and they and they are killed for that. So the the questions go uh, strong questions about your faith and your actions with your faith. Uh, beautiful film, um, slow paced but very tense. And uh, as I said, this is the Andrew Garfield performance that should have been nominated. No disrespect toward Hacksaw Ridge. I think uh, obviously Mr. Mr. Garfield got uh, both ends with conservative Mel Gibson and liberal uh, Martin Scorsese. Two film, two completely different films about faith. But uh, it get, it, Silence got one nomination. It was a technical award. Uh, but I think uh, Paramount was pushing uh, more of their eggs in the basket with uh, Fences and Arrival instead of Silence. That's a shame. But uh, but go check it out. Another film that uh, very, very strong, uh, d- didn't get any award recognition, but also a strong film nonetheless, called A Monster Calls, uh, which is a story of a young man dealing with his ailing mother, played by Felicity Jones, dealing with the grandmother, played by Sigourney Weaver, and in his head, a monster. It looks like a scarier version of Groot, voiced by Liam Neeson, and uh, dealing with um, your own your own tragedies in your life and what happens when you're, when you see somebody that you've grown up with, you love who is dying. And, uh, as the monster becomes, it seems like an adversary at the beginning of the film becomes supported by the end of the film. So, uh, a little intense visually, maybe for young folks, but, uh, definitely worth checking out. 
Uh, also on video this week, uh, which got a screenplay nomination and hopefully we'll get a wider audience, 20th Century Women with Annette Bening, Ellie Fanning, Greta Gerwig, and Billy Crudup of a young boy in the 70s with a single mom and uh, two boarders, two late, uh, well, one boarder played by uh, Greta Gerwig. Elle Fanning is the uh, girl of this young man's dreams. And uh, a 70s version of a village, taking a village to raise a teenage boy and dealing with the teenage emotions. Uh, really good stuff. Um, also out on D- DVD and Blu-ray, The Handmaiden, a very provocative film from uh, Park Chan-wook, um, and a, and a remake uh, dealing with a couple of a, a couple of con artists, male and female, and what happens when you get a little too close to the, the con that you're working on. Um, also uh, in theaters, or I say also on DVD and Blu-ray, is uh, the third collaboration between actor Mark Wahlberg and director Peter Berg. Of course, they, and it was Patriots Day. This is the they first worked together on Lone Survivor, and then they worked earlier this year on. Um, I have to look this up. Hold on. Found at Deepwater Horizon. Sorry about that. Um, Patriots Day uh, was released in December. Didn't do that well financially, and, and I think part of it is because Deepwater Horizon came out fairly soon, um, and they're kind of handheld docudramas. You are there. This is, of course, about the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. And uh, at the beginning of the film, you see all of the major players when it comes to the suspects, the police officer played by Mark Wahlberg. You have another police officer played by J.K. Simmons. You have some of the victims. And you, as as the film goes on, you see how all of these characters and their individual through-line stories come and meet to a head. Um, it's, it's a powerful drama worth checking out. Not enough people did it in theaters. Hopefully more folks will check it out on Blu-ray. And we also have uh, Fantastic Beast with Eddie Redmayne, written by J.K. Rowling, um, and it's a, a prequel sort of of a, of a community of witches and wizards, and it's supposed to be set 70 years before Harry Potter reads his book in school. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm done with wizards and witches for a time. Uh, I apparently have not given uh, I have not let go of the fact that the last Harry Potter film was split in the last Harry Potter book was split in the two films. And now we have a new cast of characters. Eddie Redmayne is fine. Colin Farrell's in it. He's fine, too. Um, I'm sure there's going to be more people out there and it looks cool. So the bigger the screen you have, the better. Don't think you necessarily have to watch it in 3D. But uh uh, emotionally didn't do a whole lot for me and, and I'm sure it'll do much more for you. So that is out there. Uh, also out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray, a new title, uh, the film, the comedy, why him with Brian Cranston and James Franco. And, uh, this is, this was a picture that I, I refer to it as when you see the trailers, uh, Cranston's, uh, college age daughter is engaged to what looks like kind of a, a space cadet slacker played by James Franco. When we find out he's actually a, a multimillionaire and it looks like an R rated version of meet the parents. And then we find out, Oh, well, I find out watching it. One of the producers is Ben Stiller. Yeah. So you have a you have a good cast of actors: James Franco, uh, Brian Cranston, Megan Mullally is the mother. Um, uh, Cedric the Entertainer shows up. Zoe Dutch as the daughter, and uh, it's one of those films. And also Keegan Michael Key, uh, actually, who is one of my favorite characters as Gustav, the uh, kind of uh, housemate companion BFF for James Franco. 
Um, it's one of those films that reminds me of a basketball team that's constantly shooting, not not even thinking about passing or strategy, just putting the ball in the air and see what happens. And uh, so there's a lot of jokes, and they don't always hit, but there are some fun moments. Uh, it's a low percentage of jokes, but the jokes that do hit are funny. My, my daughter really enjoyed it. Um, I should have made her watch Meet the Parents first, but what are you going to do? Anyway, it's out there. It's it's worth a rental. Uh, at the very least, you got uh, you got you have some really funny stuff from Keegan Michael Key. Um, also on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, as far as one of the older titles, as far as uh, with Criterion, Michael Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, a uh, story of a photographer, a London photographer who may or may not have photographed. Uh, a very suspicious meeting and his obsession with finding the people in the photo. Uh, I was actually discussing this with some gentlemen I uh, I have dinner or I have uh, lunch and movies with every week. And uh, as much as I like Blow Up, I love the remake that Brian De Palma did called Blow Out. But you can see the original with David Hemmings and Vanessa Redgrave. That's also out on Blu-ray. All right. Uh, one other film of note, not opening in Indianapolis, but it's a thriller called The Black Coat's Daughter. It's written and directed by Oz Perkins, Anthony's son, and it stars Kiernan Shipka, for you fans of Mad Men, uh, Emma Roberts, Lauren Holly, and uh, Julie Boynton, for you fans of Sing Street. And it's two girls at a at a female uh, boarding school over winter break who are left home, uh, left on campus. Um, and Emma Roberts plays a, an older a woman uh, who's catching a ride with uh, Lauren Holly and a non-creepy perform- performance from James Remar. Um, unsettling, quiet, uh, almost desperate uh, tones. Uh, um, and as the film goes on, it gets darker and darker. It could have been a little tighter for my uh, my taste. Um, but it's unsettling, not a lot of blood and gore, but just enough to uh, to make things uncomfortable. I, I don't know. It's opening in Fort Wayne, I believe. I got a screener copy of it to watch. I don't know why it's not opening in Indianapolis. Um, it's it's a smarter, d- not a dumb teenager horror film, and uh, so we, we need those. So anyway, look out for The Black Coat's Daughter. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, this weekend marks the sixth anniversary of Svengooli being on MeTV. And so congratulations to Rich and Svengooli and the whole gang over up in Chicago, Berwyn's favorite. And uh, this weekend, actually, at uh, 10 o'clock on MeTV, they're celebrating the sixth anniversary with Abbott and Costello, Meet the Invisible Man. So uh, with that in mind, and the fact that I had a guest who uh, got ill, here is my epic chat with Rich Coase, a.k.a. Svengooli. Happy anniversary, Rich. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, I've pretty much spent my whole life here in Chicago, my whole life and even my whole career. Uh, I I was born in Chicago, and about four years after that, we moved to some suburbs of Chicago. Such as? Uh, Around the Morton Grove Niles area. As a kid, what, what horror show host did you watch? I barely got in on one of the originals. I was very young, but I remember seeing at some relatives' houses when we were there late, uh, Marvin, Terry Bennett, who hosted Chicago's Shock Theater. Back then, of course, that was the name. Shock was the name of the universal movie package that was released all over the country. Mm -hmm. And that was where Vampira was first running her stuff out in L.A., and in Chicago, it happened to go to uh, WBKB-TV, where uh, Terry Bennett worked, and he became Marvin, the sort of uh, beatnik-type ghoul host. 
did that lay the foundation for uh, Jerry G. Bishop? Um, not so much, because I think Jerry was already out of town by then and, and uh, you know, working his way through radio in various cities, radio and TV. How old were you when you started watching Jerry? Uh, I was actually just about to enter uh, college. And uh, what were your impressions of watching uh, Jerry work on television? Well, first of all, I'd been a fan of his anyway from his radio work. He'd been on the air doing morning radio and such uh, for many years already before he even hit that. And uh, I was a fan of his, so I you know, was tuning in just because I heard that he was doing some funny shtick in between things as just the voiceover announcer for the horror movies on Friday night. And as it was developing along, you know, I, I enjoyed the character that he was portraying as well, and how he was kind of, you know, positioning himself between the various segments of the movie. Did he ever tell you how he developed the character? Uh, he he kind of was taking a tip from the famous Ernie Anderson Goulardi, uh-huh. who was on opposite him on TV when he was working in Cleveland. But uh, Goulardi was another sort of beatnik type character. And uh, Jerry decided to kind of update that and make it a sort of hippie ghoul. And so he kind of got, got the nod from that. And then uh, he always said that his, his Svengulli accent was kind of Bela Lugosi crossed with Yiddish. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was even funnier was he always described my accent as a combination of Bela Lugosi and Lawrence Welk. <laughs> so so Berwin really loves you. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. They're much closer ties than I thought. Well, it's interesting because looking back, because um, I asked the question I had earlier about the foundation for Jerry is uh, because of the hippie persona, and then you mentioned the beatnik persona, um, I, it, it was interesting as a, as a youngster um, – with my local horror show host, I, I grew up in Michigan, and ours was uh, Sir Graves Gastly out of Detroit, mm-hmm. is on the surface, it was scary looking. But then I realized, watch, looking back, he 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 did a, a segment in drag. He did a segment German. He would uh, paint his face, you know, paint a face on his chin and uh-huh. be filmed upside down, and he showed kids' pictures. And in uh-huh. your case, looking at the early pictures, by the way, there's somebody here at work who grew up in Elkhart, and she wanted me to tell you, you scared her when she was a little kid. <laughs> I've heard that from a few people You're here right. and there. <laughs> but but the fact is you you know, you had maybe the, the exterior was scary, but you know, you're cracking jokes the entire time. And I thought with especially with Jerry's, it's a hippie. He's not a vampire or a ghoul or a zombie. It's you know, it's a hippie that uh that delivers one liners. Right, exactly. I think part of it is just that the the characters uh, I always said, you know, Pete, there have always been people who said, oh, You should try to act more scary. <laughs> and I've often said, well, the only people who will be scared by that are, you know, kids under the age of five. It's not very effective. If you're trying to act scary and, you know, people are wanted, they're going to go, oh, come on. Whereas uh, making the character kind of comic relief to the horror is what seems to be what works. And for the most part, that's what most of the very successful hosts have done, whether it be tongue-in-cheek or you know, just blatant, you know, goofballs like myself. What did you think the first time you saw Count Floyd on SCTV? I I thought he was hilarious. It was funny because I had actually seen Joe Flaherty, who played Count Floyd, live at Second City while he was in his tenure here in Chicago. It was right after I got out of high school, in fact. And uh, I thought he was a very funny guy to begin with. But then when I saw that, I thought it was really hilarious. And one of the things that somebody brought up is, 
you know, uh, he obviously was still doing Second City here in town. He hadn't gone back up to uh, Canada during the time that Jerry was doing his Spengoolie stuff here. So it, it seems like, you know, a little bit of that might have been, you know, <laughs> added into his whole uh, Count Floyd persona. The, the idea of, you know, running movies that maybe weren't quite, you know, what you would want to run during the time. Because Jerry had a few that were like, wait a minute, this isn't really a horror movie. And yeah, I thought Count Floyd was very, very funny. Now, I know you started sending jokes to Jerry. Um, what Do you remember the first one he ever used? I I think it was something like, <laughs> you'll love this one. Okay. What do you call a grave in Russia? A what? A communist plot. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I think that's being used on Fox News today, so it's all right. <laughs> well, yes, it's right up their alley there. Yeah, so at first I was just sending him random jokes that I thought he could use. Because he was, you know, actually soliciting them from viewers. And then uh, I, I, you know, let him know a little bit about what I was doing, that I was a broadcasting student. And I actually wrote something that was more specific for him. And he started to kind of request specific things, like, can you do a parody of such and such commercial or uh, something like that? So it, it got into more long-form things than just separate jokes. And how long before he invited you into the studio to work? I would say it was at the most about a year, probably a little less than that. And uh, he had me come in, and I ended up going in there, and he'd say, hey, can you do this voice for me off camera? And uh, you know, I did some artwork that he needed for the show. Uh, one of the guys working there then would jokingly refer to me as Jerry's art director. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he had me going with him and, and doing his public appearances with him as various characters and such. And uh, you know, and it became pretty much he was trying to work it out so that I would have a full-time job at Channel 32. But before that happened, his uh, Spengoolie show was canceled. So, Well, before the birth of Son, what did your parents hope you would be doing at this time? You know, I don't know that they had any specific uh, direction that they were hoping I would go in. My dad worked in sheet metal and ventilation, and I think he pretty much knew that I wasn't planning to go in that direction. They knew that I, I liked radio, and I think they they kind of thought that I would go in, in that direction in broadcasting, but I don't know that they expected me to go into television as well. Well, how did, uh, how did Son of Spengoolie come about? Uh, basically, what happened was there was a time in between <laughs> when I became Son of Spengoolie and when Jerry stopped being Spengoolie that uh, one of the guys that was a friend of Jerry's at one of the local stations had called him and said, you know, you should just do Spengoolie just as a summer fill-in thing for us here. And they talked about it a little bit, and Jerry was like, well, I don't know that I want to dress up in this stuff again. And he <laughs> said, you know what? He said "He said to me, why don't you could be like Son of Spengoolie, and then you and I can write and you know produce the thing together. And I was like, sure, that'd be cool. And then we talked about it, kicked it around, had some false starts on it, and nothing ever really happened with it. And then a couple of years down the road, when Jerry was going to – head out to San Diego to do radio and TV there, he said, well, you know, what are you planning on doing now? Because somebody else I had been working with, uh, Dick Orkin, do you know him? Uh, I've heard famous, the name. Uh, famous radio guy who did radio commercials and did a lot of uh, famous uh, modern radio serials like Chicken Man. Oh, right. Tooth Fairy. Yeah. Uh, I'd been working with him, and he went off to L.A., 
And now Jerry was leaving, and he said, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, maybe I'll try to pitch some local station on a, on a TV show and see if I can make any inroads there. And he said, I tell you what, if you want to try to do the Southern Spangoolie thing, you have my blessing. And so he kind of handed that off to me, and which was very flattering that he would, you know, take the character that he had created and kind of, you know, turned it over to me more or less. Now, for those who 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 don't go on YouTube, what what was the besides the look? What was the biggest difference between uh, Jerry's uh, character and yours? Uh geez, let's see. Well, Jerry used to play the guitar and sing, and uh, I cannot play the guitar well enough to do that. We thank you for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, anytime. Believe me, you wouldn't want to sit through that. Um, but basically, it's the same type of character, you know, kind of mm-hmm. wisecracking and. Uh, I think Jerry's character, I don't know how to put this better, it was a little more aggressive than mine. And and I think that, you know, Sven is more, uh, the one that I'm doing is more the Jack Benny character who is set upon by the other characters and such around him. Whereas Jerry was more, you know, the wise guy who was, you know, dealing with the others or something. And, yeah, so you're the chicken butt of the jokes. Yes, exactly. Well put. Thank you. Uh, and when did the chi- was the chickens uh, your creation? The 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 fly the flying chickens. Oh no, that that went back to Jerry. Okay. Uh, you know the famous old vaudeville prop of a rubber chicken. Right. Uh, he decided that whenever he would uh, do some bad joke, which was pretty often, <laughs> uh, he would be pelted with those rather than tomatoes or something like that, or bricks, which would not have been pleasant. Or or the giant hook. The giant hook, yes. That would have been much more difficult to have one of the stagehands maneuvering all the time. you got to also spread the fun to people, because if there's one thing people always request is, can I come and throw chickens at you? Gee, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I'm at the bottom of the scroll right now. <laughs> I see. My first uh, viewing of you, of course, was on uh, was syndicated on Channel 50 in Detroit, and this was in the early 80s. How did the syndication uh, come about? Well, after... Uh, there had been various shows that had run back and forth. They had tried to run The Ghoul from one of uh, the stations that was owned by uh, oh, which which company was it at the time? Kaiser, I guess, Kaiser Broadcasting. And they actually bumped Jerry Spanguli off so that they could run The Ghoul. And he was not well accepted in Chicago because <laughs> compared to Jerry's character, this was you know an interloper. And he didn't make any friends because we first started out saying, I'm like, yeah, we got rid of that bum Svengoolie. Ooh, uh, yeah, nice work. Nice. <laughs> but uh, based on that and the fact that there was a guy in power at our Chicago station who was running all the field stations, they were field stations by then. Right. Uh, he really believed in what I was doing, and he wanted to get it on the other channels. And the funny thing was that we ended up on five different channels in different cities. But a lot of the stations, for some reason, felt that this was being forced on them, so they would not promote it, and uh, you know they would do nothing to help us out. And now, years later, I hear from people who watched me in the various cities, and they were like, oh, yeah, everybody used to watch that. And I had no idea that there was an audience watching me back then. And they say, oh, you went to Chicago after this. And I said, no, actually, I was in <laughs> Chicago the whole time. And we would customize the opens and closes especially so that it would look like, you know, it was something, you know, with jokes playing off that specific city. It was kind of a pain because we'd have to reshoot every open and every close for each city, mm-hmm. and I'd have to rewrite it so that I would get in local jokes. What were the other cities? Uh, we were in San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, 
Detroit, and Chicago. I remember because you made a crack on Bill Kennedy, who hosted the uh, the local show, the right, local movie sure. show in the afternoon. And I remember calling Channel Fifty and asking about you, and they told me that you were based out of Chicago, and I didn't believe them. No, because like, because <laughs> you mentioned Bill Kennedy. How do you know? Of course, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. well, it was funny because when we were going to do it, I asked each one of the stations, "Can you just send me a bunch of people, like a weatherman that I can make fun of? Uh, you know, various locations in the city, sports teams." Uh, and out of the stations, uh, a couple of them sent really detailed stuff, and the rest were like, yeah, never mind. Okay, I have to ask, how was Detroit's treatment of you? Detroit was uh, fairly weak. <sighs> Sorry. They they sent, like, just a little bit of information and a Detroit Pistons uh, basketball jersey. <laughs> you still have it? I think I, I believe I gave it to one of my brothers after the show was over. <laughs> how so? How long did this uh, did this last? The, the syndication. It varied in the cities from like about uh, six months to a year. Okay. And a lot of that was because they just you know they didn't promote it and they felt like it was not you know it was not something they wanted to do. It wasn't their production. At one point, we actually went to Philadelphia and shot on their set. They built a whole set just for me to shoot on. Wow. And everybody there, for the most part, was not cooperative. You know, we were doing different bits and stuff. We ran a, a bit that was pretty famous that we did, uh, Mr. Robber's Neighborhood. Right. Uh, where, uh, you know, I'm supposed to look at Fred Rogers as a criminal who breaks into people's homes. That's why he changes his shoes so they can't hear him. Right. And he was talking about how he had a good sharp knife to do something with. And one of the the engineers there goes, oh, that's nice, teaching kids to use knives. Wow, this coming from Philly fans that cheer when Santa Claus get uh, taken off on a stretcher at Eagles games. <laughs> well, what can I tell you? So it was an uphill battle in most of those places, and I think that's why it didn't last, in, a, in especially in a couple of those cities. Well, from, from a kid's standpoint, it felt like it was on longer, and I, I mean that as a compliment. And I think also because of the test of time, and there's no inter- internet, and it was you had to be there for that time, unless you had a, v, a VHS or Betamax, you had to be there for that time to see the show. Exactly. Yeah, that that was it. You know, uh, that's why I hear these people now who see the old clips and they go, wait, I remember when this was on in, in you know, San Francisco or whatever. Yep. It, it's it's quite a story. I think San Francisco was the city that we were in the longest, and that was like a full year. By then, all the others had dropped out. Some of the other characters that you had now, was was Durwood from the Jerry era or was and, and you inherited him? Yes, Derwood, the ventriloquist puppet, was from Jerry's era, and uh, to this day, <laughs> I wish he hadn't picked such a high falsetto voice, which he could do much better than I could, because I felt he should still have a similar type voice. You know, I didn't want to change the voice on it, but it's much harder for me to do. Uh, Tombstone was a, a character based on, really, he had a female skull named Zelda, and, uh, again, I, I didn't want to do the exact same thing with that, so uh, we created Tombstone. His name originally was Zalman T. Tombstone, Jr., and it was a playoff on the old Billy Saluga character, Raymond J. Johnson, oh, Jr., that was very popular right. at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Tombstone even had his own little litany, you know, like, like that. he doesn't have to call me Johnson type thing, you know. But you can call me Toomey, or you could call me, and it, it, we did that at a while at the beginning. After all, I was like... I think people will be sick of this. Let's just drop it. I always imagined Tombstone sounded like if if Bob Dylan and the Kingfish had a child. 
Yeah, that's pretty close. I'd okay. say, definitely. Tell us about the evolution of Kerwin. Kerwin, yeah. Well, we, we've had a series of different sort of uh, puppet-like assistants doing the mail. The first was our piano player, Doug. Right. And he, he was actually a live person. <laughs> uh, but he often couldn't stay around long enough because he, he is, in actuality, a, a working musician who constantly has different gigs all over the place. So he couldn't wait around until we got, you know, after we did the song to do the music. We did the music bits, and then uh, we'd have to wait to do the mail after we did several other things, and he often couldn't stay around. So we just said, well, let's try some things. And we had uh, a bat whose voice was like a sort of processed high-tone thing. Right. And it was so annoying that one of the bosses in charge here actually said, I want you to get rid of it. And we had to actually do a bit where he was fired because he couldn't stand that voice. <laughs> And then we, for a while, we had a uh, pterodactyl who was a disc jockey who was the assistant, and uh, a dinosaur, I believe. We're very into reptiles at times. I see. And finally, we had a spider for a while, and because he had eight legs, he had eight different voices, and for some reason, that just didn't work at all. But finally, uh, someone from our kids' show, Green Screen Adventures, a young lady named Jessica Hope Carlton, who uh, is very adept at building puppets, kind of as a surprise, uh, cooperating with my uh, director, came up with this. She used like one of those sort of alligator-type things you buy at the zoo. It's like a head on a stick, and you pull a little trigger to make it talk and move the mouth. And she combined that with the body of a rubber chicken and created Kerwin as a prehistoric rubber chicken. Who sounds like Jerry Lewis. Who, yeah, well, when I first looked at him, when they gave him to me, he had these kind of goofy eyes and funny teeth. And for some reason, it struck me that he sort of looked like very young Jerry Lewis. So that was why he got the voice. It was kind of like this. Do you also not bring up Dean Martin around him? <laughs> no, I constantly bring up Dean Martin <laughs> just to make him angry. So speaking of Doug, how do you select the music for the shows? You know, it's, I've often been asked by one of my coworkers, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'll say, you know, I want to do something, you know, this is like flying to the moon. And he'll say, okay, uh, and he comes up with all these songs with moon in it, and then I'll go, I know, and, and come up with some song that has no word moon in it, and he'll be like, wait, I don't get it. But there's some way that I can tie in certain lyrics that sound exactly like, you know, what, what the originals are that has something that has something to do with the movie. And how did you meet Doug? Doug and I went to high school together, actually. We ah. were in band together in high school. And uh, we became friends and, and just hung around together. And uh, when I started doing TV shows, I figured, you know, it would be great to have him help out. What did you play? I played trombone. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played trombone, so oh, we, please don't ask me to do a solo. Oh no, that's right. well, we we live in the land of J.J. Johnson. We wouldn't ask you to do that. Well, but, certainly, uh, yeah. But I also I also imagined you as Woody Allen and Take the Money and Run, where you played the cello, but you also had to drag the chair during the parade. <laughs> Let me tell you, being a trombone player in a parade is not fun because you're right at the front of the band because obviously because of the slide action they put you there, and also. When you're playing, you don't get to look down and see if there's anything dropped by the horses that were earlier in the parade. <laughs> that was one of the biggest hazards. And I always thought that doing marching band out on a field was one of the most unmusical experiences ever because you think you're doing these formations and stuff, and half the instruments turn away from the stands while they're walking in you know, some pattern, and that means they can't hear that part of the music. So it's oh, like you're not hearing the whole you know, thing like you do in a concert. What's the deal?
how did Jerry and you come up with all of those sound clips? Well, with Jerry, it was a matter of, you know, he used them in his radio stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had a huge library of, of uh, sound effects and little sound bites and things that they, he passed a lot of on to me. And actually, it was the same thing with me because I wanted to be in radio, and I also did that. I mean, maybe it's not as common anymore, but a lot of disc jockeys used to use little, you know, sure. these little sound bites, uh, little, you know, cart-type reactions and because they were on audio carts that you'd throw into the machine. And I uh, just built up this whole library. And, of course, once I started here, a lot of the guys had suggestions for things or would find something in a show or in a commercial. They, oh, you know, you should really use this. So we, we've got it all. It's all now computerized, obviously, like everything else. It's all digital. And it's in a little, uh, a little machine that we can just call up a number and hit. How many films or how many episodes do you record in one batch? Uh, it varies. We've done as many as nine. Wow. Which is, you know, uh, we're in the studio from noon until nine o'clock every night when we do these. Okay. And that's a long haul. Believe me, being in that makeup for that length of time, not pleasant. But, uh, yeah, we've done as many as nine, and a comfortable range is usually five, I would say. Okay. Because that gives us a, a little, you know, easier time of it. And we're not, like, under the gun like, you know, Lucy in the candy factory. <laughs> and when you're selecting the films, is there a pattern? I mean, you know, sci-fi, horror, monster movie, killer movie. Is is there a pattern of any kind? Well, it's not so much a pattern. Uh, my idea usually is to try to vary it somewhat because we do get people who will often complain about the fact that we're doing uh, – you know, too many mummy movies all at once or too many Frankenstein movies. And, you know, to me, it's like you're complaining about these universal classics. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but I try to, to vary them when I can. And also, there are certain ones that we have only a certain time window for. So we have to make sure that they can air only during, like, we've had movies that we can only run during one month. Jeez. So we have to, you know, make sure it gets in then. So a lot of times it depends on what the contractual window is, the window of time that we can fit the movies in, and, you know, what what's available to us at what times. Right off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite and least favorite films that you've shown over the years? No, favorite ones, uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I do like uh, House of Frankenstein. I got to run Nightmare on Elm Street, which I really enjoyed, and wow. Halloween, the originals. I uh, really enjoyed those. Ones that I don't like as well, eh, there's quite a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have mentioned to you before the uh, Midnight Movie Massacre, which was an absolutely terrible movie. There was one movie that I often cannot remember, A Track of the Vampire, oh. which is so bad and boring. It's a movie where half of it was shot in California and the other half was shot in Yugoslavia, and neither side knew what the other side was doing. <laughs> And it was so bad that when I was at Channel 32, we actually intercut it with with a bunch of other things. And we did one whole segment that was kind of, you know, Spence around where it had changed. And suddenly the, the woman – it's a scene where this woman is being chased all through the city and into the ocean by the vampire. Mm-hmm. And with my redubbing, it became the fact that she was supposed to show up for swim team practice and didn't want to. And that was the coach running after her. <laughs> and at times there was like a bald lifeguard who showed up. So naturally his voice became that of Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one of the really, really awful ones. 
I would say, does is it the quality of the film that gets it a a Spence around treatment, or have you? I, I think I remember once you did it with even with Night of the Living Dead. We we did separate scenes from that. A lot of times I'll lift scenes and it, so it doesn't interflow. I mean, interrupt the flow of the movie or you know ruin people's enjoyment of the actual movie itself. If it's a really bad movie, a lot of times the only way to save it is to do something like add some sound effects to it along the way. Um, now, I know there was one of the writers from Mystery Science Theater 3000 grew up in Chicago. Have you heard, have you made contact with any of those guys before? No, I've never been in contact with them. I've heard from other people that, you know, they've they've done little shout-outs to Sven in some of their shows that um, one guy said he went to some convention and dressed as me and ran into one of them, and the guy immediately said, hey, your son is Sven Gooley. <laughs> okay. They, they know about it, and I remember reading an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking to to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, we weren't the type of guys who were trying to, you know, pick up uh, cousin Brucey on the radio from New York or whatever like that. We were trying to watch people like Ray Rayner, who did a morning kids show here in Chicago, and Sven Gulli. So they were aware of of both, and uh, they they obviously saw both Jerry Svengooley and my son of Svengooley. Have you ever talked to any of the filmmakers or actors whose movies you've uh, you've aired? Very rarely. Uh, you know, a lot of them right now. Of well, course, a lot of the Universal folks, a lot of them not are around. <laughs> uh, although I did hear, uh, I've got a couple guys who do a great website called Terror from Beyond the Daves. And it's, they have a blog about different horror hosts and horror-oriented things. And they both are guys who grew up watching me and are big fans. And now, especially with our national exposure, when they go to conventions, they, they get a lot of feedback about the show from people. They ran into Julie Adams, who was the beautiful woman in the white bathing suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And she was just thrilled to hear that you know we show her our, her movie on our program. The same thing with Tippy Hedren from The Birds. Sure. She, we ran at, uh, The Birds here in Chicago and won the time slot, which was just, you know, incredible. For, you know, it's like Sven Gulli winning the time slot. Good grief. <laughs> but she was another one who was just thrilled to hear that we were running that show on free broadcast TV since it hasn't appeared on that very much. And it, it's just really great to, you know, get even these secondhand things. I did meet uh, Robert England, Freddy Krueger. And it turns out he's a big fan of my show. He's been watching it out in California now, and he's had a lot of very complimentary things to say about it, which is really nice. Lance Henriksen mm -hmm. met up with him. He's a very nice guy. It was a lot of fun and seemed to enjoy the show. Um, we, we ran him in Pumpkinhead uh, a couple yes. times. Mm -hmm. And I think Piranha 2 as well. So. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> How often are you allowed in Berwyn? I'm allowed there any darn time I want to be there. <laughs> do you let have the key to the you. city yet? They don't even need a key. I've got like a key card. <laughs> just lets me in and out. It's not a problem. Actually, yeah, it's funny because just about, I'd say, 95% of the people in Berwyn love that we do the stuff that we do about that city. And they know it's just jokes. Uh, for a while, they had a mayor who was, who was you know, Oh, you go, oh, we we don't want to be the butt of Sven Gulli's jokes, and yet any time I'd show up there, he always made sure he was there to get a picture shaking my hand. Politician. Yes, and uh, and and occasionally it's like the, the people who are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't make fun of our town. But uh, the thing is, every time I've done a radio 
interview or TV interview, and people have asked you about Berwyn. I've always, you know, stated what I just told you and the fact that it's a really nice suburb. The people are very nice there. They're all hardworking people, and now they're trying to be, you know, a little more upscale, and they're adding more arts and, and things, and, uh, you know, God bless them. It's, it's a nice place, and it also has my favorite horror collectibles store, a place called Horror Bolts, which has a real nice stock of all sorts of things. How did you pick Berwyn out of all the, all the towns for the, for the bit? That was Jerry's doing. Uh, back when he was trying to figure it out, um, he had always uh, had, uh, when he was in Cleveland, uh, Goulardi, Ernie Anderson, made fun of a server called Parma. And when he came here, he had that in mind. And he also, at that time, Rona Martin's Laugh-In was kind of winding down, uh-huh. and they were making fun of beautiful downtown Burbank, as was Johnny Carson. And he thought, well, we, we need to do something like that. We can make small-town jokes about that. It would be funny. And he was trying to decide on something, and he ended up having a sponsor that was from the Berwyn area. And when he went there, it, it seemed like the one street, Ogden Avenue, was all – <laughs> savings and loans and used car lots. And then he found out that they had the yearly parade in honor of mushrooms, the Hobie Parade. <laughs> Hobie is Czech for mushroom. Yeah. And he decided this would be a good place to, to use as our uh, our city that we uh, kind of poke fun at. Well, it, has a, it has a flow to it compared to, say, Downers Grove, Westmont, or Wheaton. Yeah, you can't <laughs> go like, Cicero, it doesn't flow as well as Berwyn. <laughs> Is 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 there a film that you've always wanted to show and had not ha- have not had a chance to do yet? Yes, Fiend Without a Face. Do you know that movie? Um, the French film, right? No. Oh no, no I'm no. thinking I'm thinking of Eyes Without a Face. I'm sorry. No, no. This, sorry. this is like a, a cheapo. I think it's an American international one. Okay. Where there's something invisible that is killing people, and they're not sure what it is. And at some point, they find a way to make them visible, and it turns out there are these brains with spinal columns that kind of like inch along. They were done with stop-motion animation. And when they are fighting with them, when you shoot one, it makes a noise like a whoopee cushion kind of and, and lets loose the sort of raspberry jelly type stuff. Wait, is this the way with the flying brains with the eyes? Or uh, am I something else? It, it, you may be confusing it with uh, the brain from Planet Eros. Ah, okay. All right. <laughs> but these, you would remember these right away because they're, okay. they're smaller brains, about the size of a human brain, but they had this sort of spinal column, and they inch along like an inchworm using that. And they can also, like, leap through the air. Well, this is my YouTube project for the day. That's good. All right. Yes, you'll enjoy it. Believe me. Now, now how long have you been with the U? I have been here since 1995 at WCIU, and then as we've added more stations, uh, my shows have gone on to the various stations and including now our network, MeTV. How did the MeTV deal come about? Because of the great success we had here in town, when the U first went on, it was kind of a hybrid of of what MeTV is and uh, also a little more modern uh, type programming that we would uh, manage to get. And as we went along, uh, my boss, Neil Sabin, who was like a genius, (laughs) had uh, (laughs) noticed that uh, like Nick at Night and TV Land were changing dramatically, and they weren't what they originally were supposed to be, you know, with this classic TV stuff. And he had this idea of making me t- the Me TV station, which we did first locally here, and he felt that there was viability to that across the country since, you know, people weren't really getting that uh, presented the way that we presented. And uh, he managed to start, you know, 
start the wheels in motion, and now we're in almost 80% of the country. Cool. And it, it's especially amazing that it happened in about a year's time to have that kind of progress. really says a lot for what Neil could do and, and what the MeTV na- uh, National Network can do. I'd say you could call those other syndicated cities from the 80s and blow raspberries at them, but they're probably not there anymore or, or probably dead. <laughs> oh, you never know. Yeah, most of the people involved have probably moved on and uh, are not quite around anymore or, yeah, have been deposed. Knowing the nature of television, they probably lost their jobs. And... They're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Yes, and I'll shed a tear for them like that Indian standing <laughs> alongside the highway. For MeTV, is it strictly Universal Films? Right now it is, yeah. Uh, we have a, a really nice contract with Universal, and we're actually working on an extension of that for the future that would add in even more films for us. And we're hoping that that'll happen. And this is really, you know, the first broadcast TV national uh, exposure for these Universal horror films since many, many years ago. Which I think is a a really cool thing. I know uh, recently there's been films like The Mole People, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And I know... uh, uh, the uh, the horror film with uh, Dirk Benedict and and uh, Struther Martin. I mean, those are ones I can't even think of the last yeah, time you're I talking saw about <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's cool that you 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 look for films that have not seen the light of day in a long time. Yeah, and I think it, it's a really an education for a lot of people because there is a generation that hasn't seen these. We, when we were kids, it seemed like they ran them much more on television, and now if they run at all, they've run on cable as opposed to on, you know, actual broadcast TV. So the fact that we're kind of, you know, reintroducing these to a lot of people who maybe never saw them before is, is really great. It's nice to continue the universal legacy. And and also, from a, you talk about from an educational standpoint, I love when you do a segment based on who these actors appeared in, you know, what other films they've appeared in, what the director has worked on. You know, when, when my daughter saw that Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster, that, that blew her lid a little bit in a good way. Uh, sure, yeah. There are things that people really don't expect uh, or, you know, they don't know about connections to various things. Like the people who ended up playing some other part on, on a TV series years later that they had no idea that that ever happened. So it's very cool to be able to, you know, make these connections for people or just remind people, you know, this guy also did this. And at times it's it's really a tribute to the versatility of the actors, and, and it's great to show that they had a wide enough range to do so many things. You're a walking IMDb, sir. Yeah. No, I'm sitting right now, actually. <laughs> and I know also um... – You've you've also been showing comedy shows, and and don't listen to the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. With showing, you know, I know you've done the Three Stooges marathon and Abbott and Costello, and yeah, uh, you know, well, most of the Abbott and Costello stuff we've shown still has a horror element to it. It's not, you know, we're not just showing, you know, hit the ice or something like that. Right. Abbott and Costello meet the mummy or or you know Frankenstein or whoever. Uh, we've thrown in a few things here and there. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost and Mr. Chicken. There's still like a horror sure. scare element to that. If anything, you know, we've run some Marx Brothers movies, and uh, that's mainly because I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers. They were a big influence on me. And uh, you know, I, again, I love when people are like, oh, this is wrong. You should be showing only scary things. And uh, it's like, have you noticed that a great portion of my part of the show is comedy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And we, we also like the, you know, you, you air it the same reason why dogs lick their elbows, because you can. 
There you go, exactly. <laughs> and also, thanks for saying elbows. Well, yes, thank you for <laughs> saying elbows too. Um, and also, it's it's really cool that the, the show on MeTV, you've you kind of become an ambassador for local horror show hosts. It's a lost art. I mean, we have we have Sammy Terry popping up every every few months here in Indianapolis, but it, it's cool for you to give shout outs to cities that have had hosts, and you show other hosts, and even show old photos of Jerry and you. Um, it, it's it's a lost art, I think, for local television. Well, with the the way that uh, television has been going now in the TV economy, most local show, uh, stations do not do entertainment type shows. They're mainly, you know, if they have budgets. They're going to do news and sports and public affairs and an occasional magazine show, but you know, they're not going to do something that's strictly entertainment because, uh, according to them, it it doesn't generate enough money to justify, you know, the studio time and editing time and everything like that. And when we first started here uh, locally, the people in charge of the station said, you know, well, maybe we're not going to make money on this, but it's an important part of TV and something that viewers really get an attachment to and make a connection with, and that's important to us. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're doing very well, and it's it's nice to see that people, you know, every every email I get from out of town, for the most part, will mention, we haven't had anything in town like this since, you know, in the 70s with, you know, Dr. Bad Teeth or something like that. So <laughs> there's always, everybody's got a horror host they watch sometime in their life, it seems. Do you do you do shows strictly for me, TV, and then you do shows strictly for the U? We, yeah, we have um, some shows that, that run basically – well, the ones that run on MeTV right now also run on the U. It's like a week delay basis. But then on the U2, we run some of the older ones that we have that we still have rights to or that are public domain. And I also do a Three Stooges show, Stooge Palooza, that runs on Saturday nights on our Me Too channel. So I was going to say, how often do you get to appear on TV as Rich? Uh, every week. Okay. <laughs> Basically, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup, in the makeup, out of the makeup. Well, you, you're, you know, it, it keeps you young, maybe. Well, I don't know about that. Or but... young at heart. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> so so what's next for uh, for Spanguli? Uh Right now, I, it seems like we're just continuing to go to more and more of the uh, places in America. More and more uh, stations are picking up the MeTV network and getting better distribution of it. And a lot of them, we started out just over the air, and now it's going to cable as well in a lot of the cities and uh, wider distribution in in a lot of the cities. There are a lot of rumors about uh, out on the West Coast that uh, we're going to have more visibility out there. So uh, I think it's just a matter of the Sven show catching on in these various places, and then I think the next step after that is possibly starting to make public appearances all over the country, which should be fun. Well, you know, you have a place to crash in Indianapolis, that's for sure. Well, thanks, I appreciate that. Silent Breed is people! Zardoz has spoken. Once again, happy anniversary to Svenguli. Six years on Saturday nights on MeTV. We really appreciate it, and we really need it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, go see a good movie. You deserve it. There's plenty out there. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. To get us out of here, here's Jimmy Page with music from Death Wish 2. Here's A Shadow in the City. Take care, everybody.